my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here at St. Peter's, along with Alistair and Roger, as he said. Uh, and we are in the third week of a sermon series we've been doing called The Table of Undeserving Friends. And this is a series about hospitality. You know, very hip to talk about hospitality these days. So that's what we're doing. We're talking about it through the lens of Scripture and what the Bible has to say about hospitality. So in the first week, Alistair preached a sermon about David and Mephibosheth. Uh, and Mephibosheth was the, the grandson of his kind of mortal enemy, Saul, the previous king, who was trying to kill him. But he shows this incredible hospitality to Mephibosheth, a man who is, who is lame in both of his feet, a man who is crippled. Uh, and he invites him to his table. And it's this wonderful display of hospitality. And then last week, Bishop Trevor preached on the story of Mary and Martha uh, in the Gospels with Jesus. And Jesus' show of, of hospitality to Mary, who wants to sit with Jesus and hear from him and be taught by him. Uh, and he extends that to her. And he pushed us, Trevor pushed us, to see that the kind of hospitality that we're to show is the kind of hospitality that offers ourselves rather than the finest drink or the finest food or anything like that. It's a hospitality that should be devoted to the person. That's what right hospitality is to look like. Uh, and this week we come to this passage from 1 Kings that James read for us very lovely. Lovely? Is that a word? Yeah? Sure. We'll say it is. Uh, it's the passage about Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. And I'm not going to lie, this has been a really difficult passage this week. In fact, I lead a, a young adult Bible studies, uh, a study on Wednesday nights, and we've been going through the book of Psalms, and this week I made them go through this passage with me uh, because I was just having a really hard time seeing what do you do with this passage in terms of hospitality, and they're sitting there and they're smiling, and they, they're probably wondering what I'm going to say. Um, and the reason I think I've struggled with this so much is there's so many different things that you could say about this, so many different ways that this could be read. Um, is this a text about how we show hospitality? Are we to be emulating King Solomon in this, hosting elaborate banquets where we wine and dine our fancy friends, uh, answering all of their skill-testing questions with ease and then doling out huge swag bags as they head out the door? I mean, is that what we're to gain from this passage? Or is this a text more about how we receive hospitality? Are we to emulate the Queen of Sheba, traveling thousands of kilometers for the best party, subjecting our hosts to uh, skill-testing questions and then praising them for their wonderful knowledge and incredible wealth uh, and then how well-dressed all of their servants are and, and give them all the finest things that we have to offer. I mean, maybe, I don't know. By this sort of reading, the highest form of hospitality we could show would be to invite our best friends around, friends who are just as smart and intelligent and good-looking and smell as good as we do, uh, and give them the finest foods that we can offer and then have a rousing game of trivial pursuit. So that would be... I think, end of sermon right there. That's where we're going to go. Uh, and the sad thing is I've actually done that. I've had a Trivial Pursuit party. Invite only, Trivial Pursuit party. Uh, it was back when I was in high school. One of the guys who was there is actually sitting up there right now. But uh, yeah, we sent out invitations to our friends. We bought the newest Canadian edition, of course, of Trivial Pursuit. We got good food, uh, good drinks, and then we patted ourselves on the back for how smart and sophisticated we were for playing this absolutely impossible game. And it's a fond memory, but in hindsight, it's kind of entirely ridiculous and self-absorbed. Um, and it's funny to look back on it now, but it was fun. But I don't think that that's all there is to gain from this passage about hospitality. This isn't about throwing trivial pursuit parties. Thankfully, Jesus offers us a very different reading of this passage of the Queen of Sheba visiting Solomon. And it's through that lens, that, that reading from Matthew that we had, that I want to read this passage this morning. But before we get to that, I want to back up a little bit, and I want to look at how it is that we get this visit from the Queen of Sheba 
Sheba to Solomon. So if you've got a Bible, if you've got a phone, open it up to uh, 1 Kings, but back it up a bit. Chapter 3 is where we're going to begin. Chapter 3. Solomon has already been made king over Israel at this point. He's been established as king. Uh, And in chapter 3, he has this dream from the Lord at Gibeon. And the Lord says to him, in chapter 3, verse 5, Ask what I shall give you. In other words, ask whatever you want from me, and I will give it to you. And then Solomon has this wonderful response, which I'm going to read. It's verses 6 through 9, so follow along. And Solomon said, You've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and an uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son, that's me, to sit on the throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. And here's what he asks for. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? And since Solomon asked for this wonderful thing, he asked for wisdom to be able to govern the people well, This is what the Lord responds by saying in uh, in 12 through to 14. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days." So Solomon asks for wisdom, and because the Lord loves this, his asking for wisdom, and not for long life or for riches or for the lives of his enemies, he says, well, I'm going to give you those things anyway. I'm going to give them as a bit of a bonus gift. So you're going to get three things. You're going to get a a wise mind, a listening mind. You're going to have riches, and you're going to have fame. That's what the Lord promises to him. And then throughout these coming chapters, that's exactly what happens for Solomon. He gets all of these three things in abundance. As the story unfolds, it's, it's so obvious that Solomon is incredibly wise. And because of his wisdom, and his wisdom in ruling his people, he starts to amass kind of riches and wealth. But in the beginning, he's using his wisdom very much for the people, for governing his his people. And my favorite story of this is is in the next chapter, in chapter 4. And this is how the story goes. Two prostitutes come to Solomon in these days. And the first one She gave birth to a baby. They live together, these two women. She gives birth to a baby. Then three days later, the other woman gives birth to a baby. But one night, the second woman's baby dies. She rolls over on him and he dies. It's tragic. So what does she do? She gets up in the middle of the night. She goes and she swaps the babies. So that when the woman wakes up in the morning, she finds that her baby is is dead. But she knows that it's not her baby. She knows the other one is her baby. So they go to Solomon and they say, Solomon, you need to sort this out for us. This is not my baby that's died. My baby is the one who's alive. And Solomon says, hmm, this is a pickle. Hmm, what am I going to do about this? Get me a sword, okay? Get me a sword. We will divide the baby in half, and we'll give half to one woman and half to the other. And the first woman, she reacts, and she screams, and she says, no, 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 give the baby to the other woman. Give the baby to the other woman. It's okay. But the second woman says, if I can't have him, nobody should have him. Divide the baby. And Solomon, by this, obviously, determines that the first woman is the mother of the child and gives the baby to the first woman. Brilliant, right? It's an awesome story. And so it goes with Solomon. He keeps getting wiser. He keeps using his wisdom for the lowliest of Israelites. Everybody's living in harmony and prosperity, and it's good. 
And as Solomon keeps expanding his trade routes and commercial enterprises and his fame continues to spread, we get this from the narrator in chapter 4, verse 34. It's going to be up there. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard his wisdom. And the most famous of these, of course, is this visit we get from the queen of Sheba. Now, Sheba is located on the southwestern corner of the Arabian Peninsula, basically modern-day Yemen, so about 2,200 kilometers from Jerusalem. It's a long visit that this queen makes. And this visit causes a huge stir in the world. In fact, it's not only recorded here in 1 Kings, it's recorded in Matthew, that Jesus talked about, reading from Matthew. It's also recorded in the Jewish Agadah, the Talmud. It's recorded in the Quran. It's recorded in the Ethiopian National Saga. It's all over the place. Okay? This is a big deal. In other words, this really happened, and it created quite a stir. But the question is, why? Why did it create such a stir? Why does this matter so much that some queen came and traveled 2,200 kilometers to visit Solomon? And I think the dead giveaway is at the beginning of chapter 10, our reading for this morning. So why don't you go ahead and turn there now to chapter 10, verse 1. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, and here it is, concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. The queen of Sheba knows that Solomon's wisdom is entirely from the Lord. It's not his own wisdom. And therefore, Solomon's fame is, in fact, the fame of the Lord. And after after she finishes asking Solomon all of her tough questions, she says that there's nothing hidden from you, she realizes. And, And the narrator says that there was no more breath in her. She's entirely overwhelmed. And then she has this wonderful speech in verses 6 to 9. The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord, your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice, and righteousness. Blessed be the Lord your God, because the Lord loves Israel forever. The queen of Sheba sees past Solomon, and she she praises the one who's actually to be praised as a result of this. She praises the Lord, the Lord who's done these things. It's not Solomon. And it's for this reason, I think, that Jesus picks up on this passage in Matthew. So flip ahead now in your Bibles to that reading from Matthew that we had, or just look up on the screen. This is Matthew 12. I'm going to read it one more time. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. In other words, Jesus. And then he says, the queen of the south, that is the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Curious. This kind of throws a wrench into things, doesn't it? We've been talking about this passage from 1 Kings strictly on the terms of Solomon and the queen of Sheba. But Jesus does something entirely different with it. 
he uses the story against the scribes and the Pharisees who were wishing to see a sign that he was from God when he was, in fact, the Messiah come among them. And he tells them that the Queen of Sheba traveled all this way just to see Solomon. But here I am, God come among you, and I stand before you, and you're asking for a sign. What's wrong with you? You're an evil and an adulterous generation going after gods that aren't even gods. So if this is the lens through which we have to read this passage, and I think that it is because this is how Jesus uses it, and I don't really want to go against the way Jesus reads this passage. Well, it means that we're no longer talking about the hospitality of Solomon in this text. See, if we read the account of Solomon welcoming the Queen of Sheba as a type of Christ welcoming the people who come to him, welcoming the church who comes to him, then it opens up an entirely new way of reading this passage. This isn't about how Solomon wines and dines the queen. This is about how Christ shows hospitality to the church. So let's look at it that way. Let's look at the story of Solomon and the queen again, but through this lens now. And there's two things that I want to say about this. The first is the way in which Christ lays out the table for us. And the second is how we actually approach the table. Okay, so the first is the way Christ lays out the table. The second is the way we actually approach the table. And let's start with the first, the way Christ lays out the table. Uh, this reading of Solomon as a type of Christ has been a reading that the church has done for nearly the whole history of the church. Uh, Ambrose of Milan, one of the early church fathers, this is exactly how he read this story. And this is what he says about it. Recognize the feast of the true Solomon, in other words, Christ, and those who were set down at that feast. Recognize it wisely and think in what land all the nations shall hear the fame of true wisdom and justice, and with what eyes they shall see him. Beholding those things that are not seen, for things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. In other words, what Solomon is showing us is that the feast Christ is offering to us, the hospitality that he is offering to us, is that we are to come to him and we are to be shown those things that we cannot see. That there is something greater than what we can see, and Christ wants to show us that. And the remarkable thing about this passage, the Solomon and Sheba passage, is the extravagance that Solomon shows the queen. Look at the words that the narrator uses in 1 Kings chapter 10. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. And there was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, the burnt offerings that he offered in the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. This is big stuff. It's extravagant. And what we see from this is that Solomon is willing to entertain any question that the queen brings to him. Any question. And he has a satisfactory answer for that question. And as Jesus says about himself, he is one far greater than Solomon. So how much more is Jesus willing to have us come with our questions, whether they are trivial, whether they're difficult, and answer those questions? Sit with us as we ask those questions. And I will be the first to admit that I have a hard time bringing everything to God in prayer. I feel like there are some things that are just too little for him to care about, some things that don't matter enough. But if Solomon is willing to engage all of the queen's questions, how much more is Jesus, who's so much greater than Solomon, he says, willing to engage with our questions? In other words, the hospitality of Christ isn't easily offended. We can come to him with whatever we're bearing, and he will receive it willingly. 
have a meeting with a guy who's part of St. Peter's. I haven't told him this, but uh, I'm not going to share his name. But one of the things that I love about meeting with him is that he comes with really difficult questions, questions that he is constantly asking of God, questions that he is wrestling with. And I love that about him. He's willing to take these questions to God and say, answer me this. And even when he doesn't get a satisfactory answer, he continues to go and he continues to ask those hard questions. And it's wonderful. It's brutal, but it's wonderful. But even more than that, even more than Solomon and Christ sitting with our questions, what we see from this passage is the vision we get of hospitality is overwhelming from this. The narrator says that the queen was breathless. Literally, there was no breath left in her. And when she sees it, she says to Solomon, the report that I heard was true. But I didn't believe the reports until I came. In fact, the half of it wasn't told to me. And so it's true of Christ. Think about the accounts in the Gospels of Jesus feeding the 4,000 or feeding the 5,000. This isn't everybody just taking like a microscopic piece of fish or a microscopic piece of bread so that you can divide just a few of these things between thousands of people. This is, this is extravagance. Everybody eats and has their fill. And at the end, basket after basket is collected of what's left over. In other words, the hospitality that Christ wants to show us is boundless. It's extravagant. It's wasteful, even. And what he wants is for us to come to him in that final day and say, the half that I was told was not true. We should be coming to Jesus expecting extravagance from him, expecting answers to our questions, expecting that he is going to put everything back to rights. And when we finally get there, it's not, we're not going to have seen the half of it. We're not going to have known the half of it. And it's a feast to which everyone is invited. All of the nations come to this. Sheba is not an Israelite. She isn't part of the family, as it were. Yet here she is, a guest of honor at Solomon's table there beside him as he offers burnt offerings in the temple. And what's most remarkable about the whole thing is what Jesus says about her, that she will rise up and condemn those who ask for signs when God himself stands among them. The Queen of Sheba is far more than just a guest, far more than an outside observer for the life that's to be found in God. She's held up as the one who gets it before these Israelites who don't get it. The hospitality of Christ knows no bounds. All are welcome at this table with him, even those who typically would be thought to be excluded. In the first week, those who are lame, crippled, come to to David, Mephibosheth. The woman, as we saw last week, who would typically have been excluded, is welcomed to the table, and now the Gentile outsider is also welcomed to the table. And if this is how Christ lays out the table for us, then we have to be willing to approach it in the same way that the Queen of Sheba approaches the table. See, she comes to test Solomon. And as we've already talked about, she comes with her hardest questions, questions she thought no one would be able to answer. And these types of questions need answers. What we see through the Queen is that there's humility required in coming with these questions. Humility required when we come and we find that these questions have actually been answered, and maybe they've been answered in a way that we didn't expect. So we come to test God, that's okay. But in the end, we praise God for the satisfactory way that he answers those questions. She was willing to admit that she's been defeated in this. And at the end of the contest, she even praises God as a result of it. And I think this is the kind of humility that's required when we come before 
the king. We come with all of our issues, all of our hang-ups, all of our questions, our doubts, and we lay them at Jesus' feet. And although we first might come thinking that we know better than Jesus does about this, that if only he had asked me how he should resolve this situation, then it would have been better, we have to be willing to concede. We have to be willing to admit that we can be beaten by someone who's far greater than us, far greater than even Solomon. See, it might be the most extravagant hospitality in the world, but if we don't come with a willing and an open and a gracious spirit to receive it, then it's just a spectacle to be enjoyed from afar. It doesn't actually change us. So that's all well and good, reading this passage as Jesus showing this incredible hospitality. But the problem with this passage, and one of the reasons I really struggle with this passage this week, is that this is a very imperfect story. On the surface, everything is positive with Solomon. He's the wise, he's the prosperous, the hospitable king. The nations come to him hearing of the wisdom of God and they praise God as a result. But beneath the surface, everything is kind of starting to fall apart for Solomon. Remember those three gifts that God gave to Solomon at the beginning? Riches, fame, wise mind, understanding. Well, he got them all. As we said, he got all of them in abundance. And at first, he uses these gifts to benefit others, to bless others. He resolved that difficult case with the prostitutes. He provides prosperity to Israel and Judah. He taught people from all over the world who came to him because of his incredible wisdom. But now, like King Midas, everything that Solomon seems to touch just turns to gold. Where his listening mind once resulted in righteousness and justice for Israel, now it just brings him more gold. In fact, the only mention of justice and righteousness in our text chapter 10, verses 1 to 13, is on the lips of the Queen of Sheba in verse 9. And it sounds an awful lot more like a reminder of what Solomon is supposed to be doing than a praise of what he's actually doing. See, where Solomon's efficient administrative system once assured prosperity and security for everybody in Israel, now it just assures more gold for Solomon. Where Solomon's international fame was once based on his incredible intellect, the narrator keeps telling us, his learning... Now it's nothing more than a source to acquire more gold. That's what this is about. And the narrator, through the Queen of Sheba, reminds us that God, not Solomon, is the source of the king's wisdom. But that gift no longer flows from Solomon to other people. He produces no proverbs, he writes no songs, he writes no works of natural history, he just amasses more gold, more wealth. And you can see that the focus of chapter 10 is much narrower than it was in the beginning. In the beginning, it was about the practical benefits that Solomon's wisdom had for everybody in Israel. But now it's just about those who are in his immediate circle. It's just about those who are in his court and how happy they must be to listen to him talk all day. See, Solomon's use of his wealth is moving towards becoming entirely self-indulgent. He's not totally lost yet, but he's headed there. If we were to read on in chapter 10, it just gets worse and worse. He just amasses more and more gold. In the next 14 verses, it's mentioned 10 times. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, I think the answer is that this is where we have to park if we want to talk about how it is that we show hospitality. We have to park in this tension between this beautiful vision of Christ's hospitality and this broken vision of Solomon just beginning to amass wealth and use this for himself. Because unlike Christ's hospitality, which is extravagant and boundless and it's poured out on all people, like Solomon, we're imperfect and we're going to mess this thing up. We probably already have. And one thing we could easily do with this passage would be to condemn 
wealth. You could condemn wealth out of this. But remember that Solomon didn't even ask for this. He asked for wisdom to rule his people well. And God said, well, because you've asked for this, I'm going to give you gold. I'm going to give you riches. I'm going to give you fame. It's, a, it's an unmerited and an undeserved gift, but it's also an unwanted gift. Solomon doesn't want it. But the problem is that he forgets his primary vocation as king, which is not to use his, his wisdom to further amass wealth, but to use it for the good of the least and the last, for the ultimate purpose of glorifying God. And I think that is what we're to take out of, out of this passage about hospitality. That is what hospitality has to be primarily about. This is about glorifying God by using the gifts that he has given to us so extravagantly. I love the, the offertory prayer in the Book of Common Prayer. It's from 1 Chronicles. All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. A recognition that none of this is ours. It's all God's. And our primary vocation is to use it to glorify him. And this isn't just about money. It's about the gifts and talent all the gifts and talents that God has given to us, everything. I think the only real display of hospitality that Solomon shows in this passage is, is in sitting patiently with the queen while she asks all of her hard questions. Now, certainly none of us is Solomon. None of us have all the answers to all the questions in the world, but we can offer ourselves. We can, we can sit with people and have them ask those difficult questions. And the most vivid memory I have of this in my own life uh, was my youth pastor, Chris, growing up in high school. My best friend Andrew and I used to meet with him every week at a bookstore for what we affectionately called Christianity. Uh, a little blasphemous, I know. But hey, we were in grade 10. We didn't know any better. And what I remember of those times was the fact that we would just sit there and we would come with these really hard questions. We'd been reading our Bibles and we'd come and we'd try to stump him with these questions. And, and he often didn't know the answer to them. But that was totally fine. Sometimes he came back with the answer next week that we were satisfied with, but often he didn't. That was okay. It was his act of sitting down with us week after week, not thinking our questions were stupid or childish or beneath him. It was in the midst of those meetings that Jesus started to make a little bit more sense, that perhaps the world wasn't quite as cold and quite as confusing as maybe I thought it was when I was a 14-year-old kid. It wasn't some earth-shattering event that he offered to us. It was this gentle plodding of someone who is just trying to use his gifts and his, his talents, use himself to glorify God, to make God known in the world. See, the flip side of this is to slip into using the gifts that God has given to us solely for our own benefit. And Solomon is an arresting reminder of how easily that happens, how easily these gifts, especially money, make us forget about our vocation of making God known in the world. And we're going to do this. I'm going to do this. You're going to do this. We're going to have moments and seasons when we forget what it means to be about the Father's business in the world. Times when we fail to show hospitality. When we use our resources and our time self-indulgently. And whether that's actually on ourselves or whether that's just on the immediate people who are around us who look like us and talk like us and act like us and smell like us. And what's remarkable about this is that God continues to use us even when we do that, even when we mess it up. And though we can't condone Solomon's behavior here, we can't condone uh, using all these things to amass wealth for his own glory, doing that more importantly than serving his people, serving God's people. Well, God continues to use him in the midst of that. 
And the queen's response to all that Solomon can tell her and give her is, Blessed be the Lord, your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. And the fact that Jesus holds up Sheba as a model of someone who sought the Lord, it means that something of God's hospitality continued to flow through Solomon to those around him. What we're to glean from this passage about the way of the cross in the world is that we must always seek to use whatever gifts God gives us to make him known in the world, to glorify him, to give everyone around us a glimpse of the generosity of God. A God who gives far more than we could ever ask or imagine. So that is the takeaway from this passage. That's where I want to end. Hospitality is about making God known in the world, about glorifying God to those who are around us. And even though we're going to screw it up, we're going to mess it up really badly, God's going to continue to use us. We need to continue to go to him and seek that he would use us to make him known in the world. Amen.